happy Mother's Day to all the mothers out there. Appreciate uh, what you mean to your families, what you mean to this congregation, and that may God bless you and what you do for Him in serving as a godly mother. This morning I want to uh, speak about something that we're going to do in a very biblical sense. Um, Last week we looked at what does the Bible say about worship this morning. I want us to look at what does the Bible say about the church. And so when we look at this question, what does the Bible say, that is always the best question anyone could ever ask. If, I, if anyone says, well, what do you think? Well, it doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter what I feel. It matters what the Bible says. We need to have a thus says the Lord. We need to have, make sure that we give an answer of authority. Colossians 3 and verse 17 says that everything that we do needs to be done in word and in deed. Of course, that we need to do everything according to what God has divinely instructed for us in the Bible. And we're going to look at what the Bible says about the church. Many people have said this before, give me the man, but not the plan. Or give me the man, but not his church. But are those two things inseparable? Can you separate Jesus from his plan of salvation? Can you, can you separate Jesus from his church? And those two things are not inseparable. Many people want Jesus and the benefits that come with Jesus, but they don't want to do the things in which Jesus said to do in His plan. Many people want the man, Jesus. They want salvation, but they don't want to be a part of His church. But we're going to look at those two things are not inseparable. You cannot have Jesus, and you cannot separate Him from these church. Jesus said in John 12, verse number 48, that... Uh, the things I've said will judge you in the last days. I'm just going to look at what the Bible says because I want everyone to go to heaven. So we're going to go ahead and dive into these three points this morning because they have a lot to say and we need time to look at them. Number one, I want us to look at the church in prophecy. The church in prophecy. And what I mean in prophecy is the appointment, the this declaration even, of the church is coming before the church even existed. And that is the church in prophecy. Go with me to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 2. And we're going to look at the first uh, three verses of this. Uh, especially verses number 2 and verse number 3. Isaiah here is, is a, is a uh, book of prophecy here. He is prophesying about the churches we're going to look at. And so let's notice what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 2. Beginning in verse 2. It says, Now it shall come to pass... In the latter days, you might want to underline that phrase, that the mountain of the Lord's house, you might want to underline the Lord's house, shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow into it. Many people will say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, the, Lord, the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways and we will walk in his path for out of, Mount, out of Zion shall the law go forth. And the word of the Lord, word of the Lord from Jerusalem. What I want to do is ask the five W questions. Okay, well, almost. We're not going to ask why, but we're going to ask five W questions so that we can unpack this text, especially verse number two, to see what he's talking about. When is this going to take place? What is he talking about? And where is it going to happen? So, number one, let's start with the question: When? When are these things going to take place? Look at the first phrase of verse number 2. Now it shall come to pass 
Meaning it's going to come to fruition when? In the latter days. Okay? So when, the question is, the latter days. Now, the question is, when are the latter days? Many times people use that phrase in an unbiblical sense. Meaning, the latter days are going to be the days in which Jesus uh, has already come and we are living in the latter days because there's these signs in the book of Revelation. That's not what I'm talking about here. Okay? When we talk about the latter days, we need to make sure we're doing so in a biblical sense. Hold your marker here in Isaiah chapter 2. I want you to go to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Because here he uses this same terminology and we need to look at what is he saying? What, when, when is this latter days going to be coming into effect? Look at Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse number 17. Now, look at what he says here, beginning in verse 16. Here, here Peter is preaching, it's the day of Pentecost. Okay, they were all in one accord in one place. Verse number 1, look at verse 16. But this was spoken by Joel the prophet. Now, if you go to Joel chapter 2, you're going to see this, this quotation Mentioned by Joel, and he's talking about the same thing that Isaiah is talking about in Isaiah chapter 2. Very very coincidental that both of them are chapter 2, and here we are in Acts chapter 2. Okay, Notice what it says. And it shall come to pass in the last days, or some translations say the latter days, that I'll pour out my spirit on flesh, your son shall dream dreams, your daughter shall prophesy, all these different things that he mentions here. But what is he saying here? He says, hey... What I what Peter what I'm preaching about Peter's saying is I am preaching about this day that Joel prophesied about in Joel two is the latter days now. So the question is when is the latter days? It's when the Christian dispensation started. It's the day in which the G, the church was established in Acts chapter two, and we'll be looking at that more later. But what it's talking about is talking about when the church, or excuse me, when the Christian age began. There in Acts chapter 2 on the year 30 to 33 A.D. in the Christian dispensation. So it was established in the latter days during the Christian dispensation. But the question is, what? What was established? It was the Lord's house. The Lord's house. Look there, he says, the mountain of the Lord's house. This is what we're talking about. What is the Lord's house? You go to uh, the, the book of uh, Zechariah, chapter 8, verse 3, you're going to see something very similar, something uh, very uh, wording-wise, and he says that he's going to establish the Lord's house. But what is the Lord's house? You go over to 1 Timothy, chapter 3, beginning in verse number 15, he says, the reason that I'm writing to you, in, in, in so many words, he says, the reason I'm writing to you is so that you may know how to conduct yourself, notice this, in the house of God, which is, that means this is synonymous with, the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So when is this going to happen? It's going to happen in the latter days, during the Christian dispensation. What are we talking about here? We're talking about the Lord's house, which is the church. Here, this is a prophecy concerning the Lord's house, or what we better know it as, as the church. The question now is, where... Is this going to take place? Where is this going to take place? Now, chapter 2 and verse, uh, in the middle of verse number 2, it says, shall be established on the top of the mountains. It shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow into it. And, and, you know, he talks there about come and let us go up and all these things. Now, one reason that it is at the top of the mountain is because it was exalted. This is the paramount of the New Testament. Uh, you think about Acts chapter 2, so a lot of people call this the hub 
of the Bible. You know, you got a got a wheel and you got the, the, the thing in the middle that all the spokes point to, all the little things point to. Why is that called the hub? Because everything connects back to it. If you look at Acts chapter 2, there's a lot of things in the Old Testament, such as what we're reading now, that point, that go directly to Acts chapter 2. And everything after Acts chapter 2 can be pointed back, or be pointing forward to those things. Why is it that we can read about the church at Ephesus? Because of Acts chapter 2 and the establishment of the New Testament church. So we see this is the paramount. Um, if you go ahead and look at verse uh, the two things down, where shall the law go forth? He says there in verse number 3, For out of Zion shall the word out of, go forth from the law, and the word of Jerusalem, the word, excuse me, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So where is this thing taking place? It's taking place in Zion, or what we better know as Jerusalem. And if you go to Acts chapter 2, if you, really if we're going to look at this in our next point, but you're going to see where are these people going to be dwelling? Where were they told to tarry out? Where were they told to wait? In Jerusalem. Why? Because that's where the Lord was going to establish His church. That's where He was going to do this at. And that was prophesied by Isaiah hundreds of years before Christ came to establish His New Testament church. And number four is who? Who is this church going to be beneficial for? It's going to be beneficial for all nations. It wasn't just going to be for the Jews like the Old Testament law or the Old Testament mosaical law was for, but this New Testament is going to be for all people, Jews and Gentiles. Doesn't matter your ethnicity, doesn't matter your race, doesn't matter your gender, the church is for all people. You read Galatians chapter 3, we're all sons of of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You read passages such as the one on your handout, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 14. They just tore down that middle wall of separation that we're going to be all one in Christ. This church is not for just one race. It's for all people, for all nations, for all time. So we see this prophecy here in Isaiah chapter 2. But now let's go to Daniel chapter 2. Go to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. Now here in Daniel chapter 2, the Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And Daniel, come, he needs this dream interpreted. So he goes to Daniel and says, Daniel, I've had this dream. I need you to interpret it for me. And it's about this statue and it's got these different pieces. It's got this head. It's got the, the, the you know, the different parts of it. The iron being, uh, um, the legs being iron, the feet being clay. All these different things. You can read all that in, in those things. But no, and then he has to interpret it for them. What does this dream mean? Okay, well, what does all these things mean? Now look at verse 44. We're going to just notice the conclusion of this. Daniel 2 and verse 44. It says, In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. Okay, So what he's saying here is all these others are going to be consumed. They're going to be torn down. They're going to stand for a while. This one's going to be greater than this one. But eventually they're all going to collapse. But he says, in these days, the king, the, the kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. Notice this. That shall never be destroyed. And this kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall not. It shall be breaking up its pieces and consume all other kingdoms. And it shall stand forever. Now, the question might be thinking, no, Austin, we're talking about something totally different here. You know, in, in Isaiah 2, I saw that we were talking about the Lord's house. Lord's house being the church. We looked at that in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. But here we're talking about the kingdom. Don't you know that the kingdom is something totally different? 
but it's not. Now, I want you to, if you're writing your Bibles, I want to encourage you to write this by this verse. Write Mark 9 and verse 1. Okay? Here in Daniel 2.44, write in the margins of your Bible, Mark 9 and verse 1. Because what I want to do is show, is show this. I want to show, number one, that the church is indeed the kingdom. Okay? That they are one and the same. And I'll show you another verse later that shows the same thing that we're about to look at. But number two, that this church is the Lord's house is established in Jerusalem. And that's exactly where it was established at. That's my objective here looking at this prophecy. Number one, is there a difference between the church and the kingdom? But number two, where was this established at? It's going to be in Jerusalem. Okay? So by Daniel 2, 44, write Mark 9 and verse 1. And when you have that written down there, go to Mark 9, 1. Mark 9, 1. And this, and this teaching here that the church is the kingdom and the kingdom is the church is not uh, popular among a lot of religious bodies. They believe that Jesus set up his kingdom and that he, or excuse me, set up his church and that because he set up his church and the Jews rejected him, uh, that he's going to come back later and establish his kingdom. So the idea of premillennialism, the idea of, hey, it's going to be established later. But look what Jesus said here in Mark 9 and verse 1. Remember, the question that we're examining this morning is what does the Bible say about the church? I want to ask, what does the Bible say right here in Mark 9 verse 1? Look what it says. And he said to them, Assuredly I say to you that there are some standing here, underline that phrase, some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God present with power. What does that verse teach about the kingdom? This verse teaches that what? There are still going to be some there on this day when Jesus said this. That are still going to be alive. They're still going to be standing. That they're going to be able to see the kingdom come to fruition in their lifetime. That's what this verse teaches. There are surely I say to you that some are standing here who will not taste of death until they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now, by this verse, because we're going to keep making a chain here. Go to Luke, right, right, don't, don't go there yet. But by Mark 9, 1, write Luke 24, 46 through 48. Okay? Because notice, what is the kingdom going to come with here? What is this kingdom going to be coming with? If you look at the last phrase, it's going to be present with power. Remember that. We're talking about the kingdom, and it's going to be present with power. Okay? Now, let's go now to Luke 24, verses 46 through 48. Luke 24. Okay, Jesus here has already died on the cross. He has already uh, re- uh, been resurrected. This is his, um, many times we talk about his great commission, right, from Matthew 28, Mark chapter 16. This is the great commission according to Luke, okay? And he gives us a little bit more details than the other ones. But look here what Jesus said, Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse number 46. And then he said to them, Thus is written, and thus is necessary, that Christ to suffer... And raised from the dead the third day. Now look at this. That repentance and remission of sins. Underline those two things in your Bible. Repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name to all nations. Remember who is the kingdom for? All nations shall flow into it. We see that here as well. Beginning where? In Jerusalem. Where was the church going to be established? In Jerusalem. Okay. Now look at this. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I promise. I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Now, let's, let's, let's make our connections. 
There's going to be a kingdom that's going to be established forever. Daniel 2 verse 44. Mark 9 and verse 1, there's still going to be some of you standing here that will not taste death till you see the kingdom of God present with power. Now let's look at this verse. Behold, He's going to send the promise. It's going to be in Jerusalem. And you're going to receive the power from on high. So when are they going to receive the power? Where are they going to receive the power? Where is the power going to come from? It's going to be from upon high. It's going to be the promise, the Holy Spirit. John 16 verse 13, if you want to go ahead and look at that verse, you can. But it's going to be in Jerusalem. Okay. Now, go with go with me. You might want to write by this Acts one, Acts or excuse me, Acts two. Well, you can look at Acts one verse eight and Acts two verse four. Okay, to see both of these. Okay, Acts one verse eight, and also Acts two and verse number four. Okay, so let's go to Acts one now to see this. Acts one and verse number eight. Now. Here he says this, but you, talking about the apostles, look at verse number two, he's talking to the apostles, shall receive power, okay, that's what we're looking for because the kingdom is going to be present with power, when the Holy Spirit, okay, so how's the power going to come? It's going to come in the form of the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in where? Beginning in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts or the end of the earth. So we see that this Holy Spirit is going to be bringing the power. You go over to Acts chapter 2 and verse number 4 now. And it says, And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. And the Spirit of and the Spirit gave them utterance. Now where were these people? Where were these people at? They were told to tarry in Jerusalem. You look up at verse number 1. The day of Pentecost had fully come. They were all one accord in one place. This is, of course... Um, they are in Jerusalem because they were told to tarry there in these things. Now, what happened in Acts 2? Okay, The promise of the Holy Spirit came. That power was from on high, which is the Holy Spirit. They began to speak in tongues. But what happens at the end of Acts chapter 2? Go to verse number 41. And those that gladly received His word were baptized. And on that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. The question is, what were they added to? Look down at verse number 47. Praising God and having favor with the people. And the Lord added to what? The church daily. Those that were being saved. So what happens here in Acts chapter 2? Everything before Acts 2, the church is in future tense. It's going to be coming. It is coming. But here in Acts chapter 2, we see what? The church is here. So can we answer this question? Does the Bible say that the church and the kingdom are the same? Yes. They are exactly one and the same. So that is the church in prophecy. Number two, let's look at the church promised. The church promised. Go to Matthew 16. Matthew 16. And look at verse 18. Matthew 16 and verse number 18. So this is the church promised. Still, has the church came yet at this point? No. Because it's not Acts chapter 2. This is before Acts chapter 2. So it is promised to be built. Okay, let's notice what Jesus said here in Matthew 16 and verse 18. 13 through 18. Here, beginning verse 13. And when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Whom do men say that I the Son of Man am? Verse 14 says, Some say that you're John the Baptist, some Elias, some one of the uh, Jeremiah's, or one of the prophets. But Jesus says, I don't care what they say. Verse 15 says, but who do you say that I am? 
Of course, Peter speaks up first here. He's always the first one to speak up. And he says, Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say unto you that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now look at verse 19. Go ahead and look at verse 19, looking at our last point. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So let me ask this question again. Is the church and the kingdom the same? Yes, because look, if you look at verse 18, he's talking about I will build my church. Verse 19, he says, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. Why would he say, hey, I'm going to build this, but I'm going to give you the keys to something totally different? He says that they are one and the same. But let's examine this promised church. Notice he says, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock. The question many times religious leaders get confused upon is, what is the rock? Many, many times Peter's, uh, Peter is said to be the rock. And Peter actually means Petros, or, or small pebble or rock. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. He says, And I say it unto you, that thou art Peter, you are Peter, and upon this Rock. Now, did he say upon Peter? No. Upon this rock. What is he talking about? He's talking about the confession that Peter made in verse number 37, or 30, or verse 16, that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Upon the bedrock of foundation, that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, based upon that confession, Jesus says, I will build my church. He's not building the church upon Peter. He's not going to build it upon anybody else because he promised to build whose church? Because it, let me, let's just look at it this way. If Jesus said, I'm going to, upon the rock and upon Peter, I'm going to build the church, I don't think that makes sense because he would have said, I will build Peter's church. But Jesus says, I'm going to build my church. So the idea of the, the um, rock being here has to be related to Jesus and Jesus being the son of the living God, which Peter already said. Now let's examine this a little bit deeper. He says, upon this rock, I will build. This is future tense. This is something the Lord had promised to do. This is the, But the question is, did he fulfill his promise? Of course he did. We've already looked at it, Acts chapter 2, and we uh, are the church today as well. But he says, I will build. It's future tense. It's something that's going to happen. But look at this little word, my. My. And we're going to talk more about this word, my, more in detail. But what does my show? shows possession, right? It shows ownership. This is my Bible. This is my iPad. This is my iPhone. What does it emphasize? It belongs to me. Jesus here is saying, this is my church. Who does the church belong to? It does not belong to me. It does not belong to you. It does not belong to any human being. It belongs to Jesus. The church belongs to Him. Why does it belong to Him? Number one, we, we just look at it in this context. He promised to build it. He claimed it was his. Let's go ahead and get those two out of the way. Wait there. Hold on one So we got those two out of the way, but let's look at two more things. Number one, he purchased it. 
He purchased the church. Acts 20 and verse number 28. Take heed to yourselves and to the flock amidst which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God. Notice this phrase. Which he purchased with his own blood. Now let me tell you something about something about purchasing. When you go purchase a car, and let's just say you pay for it in cash, all paid in full, just like Jesus did with the church, what does that mean? It is yours. It belongs to you. Right? Jesus paid, he purchased the church with his own blood. It belongs to him. But number two, it is his bride. You look at Ephesians 5, verse 25 through 27. He talks about the relationship between husbands and wives. But then he gets down to the relationships between hus- or between Christ and, it being, and the church being the bride of Christ. You know, you, you, you might say, this is my wife. What are you showing? This is I, she belongs to me, right? This is my church. It possession shows ownership. My church showing ownership to Jesus there. But look at ver, look at this next phrase. He says, "I will build," which means future tense. My shows possession. But look at this next one, church. If, if you just look at Matthew sixteen and verse eighteen, "I will build my church." How many churches? Did Jesus promise to build? Let me let me let me rephrase that. That did Jesus say he was going to build church in the singular or churches in the plural? Which one did Jesus say he was going to build here? He says, "I will build my church." Singular. I mean, prom- did he promise to build? But is that true throughout the rest of the New Testament? Many people say, "Well, you know, I maybe." Let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. Let's notice what Paul said, okay? We see what Jesus said here, but let's see if Paul taught the same thing that Jesus did. Ephesians 4 and verse number 4. He says, There is one body and one spirit, even you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father above all who is in you all and through you all. Okay, now, notice this first one. You might even want to circle it. There is one body. One body. Now, if you go over to Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, notice what it says here. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. So let me ask this question. What's another name for the church? According to Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, it is the body. So we can say the church is the body and the body is the church. You want another verse that teaches that same thing? Go over to Colossians 1 and verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. Okay, so we see those things used interchangeably. The church is the body and the body is the church. So when you look at Ephesians 4 and verse 4, he says there is one body. So what? how many churches are there? There's but one church. Okay, and the Bible teaches uh, that fact over and over again. So we've looked at the church prophesied. We looked at the church promised. And I want us to look at our last point very quickly. And let's let's look at the true church of the Bible is peculiar. Peculiar. Okay, it is special. Okay, we are called to be a peculiar people. First Peter chapter uh, 2 teaches us that. We are to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. But we are the people of the church. So the church is a peculiar church. Meaning it is a special church. I want, I want to kind of use this illustration here, and if I used it before, just bear with me. Let's say that we go to a ball game. And we're going to this ball game, and 
we, we drive separately. Let's just say we're going to the World Series. And we're, going, we're, just, we're meeting there, and, uh, you know, we, we meet up, and it begins to rain. And I forgot my rain jacket in my truck. Well, you know, you're going to be a really good friend, and you're going to go get my jacket out of my truck for me. And I just throw you my keys and say, hey, go get my, go get my jacket because you're awesome. And what are you going to say? Well, I don't know what kind of truck you drive, Austin. I don't know where it's at. I don't, well, it's, it's parked over there in the yellow lot. Well, there's going to be hundreds of thousands of cars in that yellow lot because it's the busiest baseball game in Atlanta's ever seen, right? Well, it's, it's a gray one. Well, there might be a hundred gray ones in that one deck. But if I gave you every identifying characteristics, it's in the yellow deck. It's silver. It's a Toyota. It's a Tacoma. It's got this license plate. It's on this level. It's in this parking spot. If I gave you every characteristic of my truck, could you find my truck? With enough time, you could. Same way as with the church. Jesus has gave us a blueprint for the church. He has given us the blueprint in the Bible for us to find the one New Testament church. Because the problem today is... There have been so many religious groups tweak and change and add things in and go away from the Bible. But friends, remember what our title is. What does the Bible say about the church? Number one, it is peculiar because it is pre-denominational. It is pre-denominational. Paul pleaded for unity in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse number 10 there where he says that they all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. Jesus prayed for unity, that his followers may be one, as him and the God, the Father, are one, that they may be one in us. Okay, But it's pre-denominational. Jesus wanted his followers to be one. He wanted, uh, Paul pleaded for unity, to teach the same thing, to be of the same mind. It was pre-denominational. He did not want fractions and divisions. He wanted everybody to be one. What about the name of the church? What name are we supposed to wear of Christ. You might be thinking, oh, it's just, it's just a name you put on a sign. It's just something we call ourselves. There's nothing in a name. Let me ask you this. What do you name your children? Would you ever name your child Jezebel? Would you ever call your son Adolf Hitler? Why? Because there's something associated with that name. There's something within a name. You would never call them those things. You would never name your child Judas. Why? Because there's a negative connotation associated with them. Just like there's a negative connotation associated with them, there's a positive thing associated with a name. You can read about the church of Christ in the Bible, Romans 16 and verse 16, salute one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ salute you. 1 Corinthians um, 1 and verse number 2 talks about the church of God which meets at Corinth. And the name of the followers is Christians. Acts 11 verse 26, 1 Peter 4 and verse 16. Why do we call ourselves the church of Christ? Why is it that the church of Christ is in the Bible? It's because it shows possession to who owns it. It shows glory for the one who died for it. And it shows who we are followers of. The church of, that means belongs to Christ. Remember, he promised to build it. He's the one that purchased it. So let's give him the name that wears it. The worship, and I'm not going to go into detail of this because I went through it Uh, Pretty detailed last week, but I do want to go over some things. Remember John 4, verse 24. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And we see the five acts of worship. Prayer, preaching, giving, Lord's Supper, 
and singing without use of mechanical instruments. And we looked at that last week of why we do that because the Bible simply says to sing and nothing else. What about the organization of the church? Who is the head of the church? There's some religious bodies that say that there should be a man that is the head of the church. But Colossians 1 and verse 18 says that Christ is the head of the body of the church. And so who is the head of the church? Jesus. He's the only head. He is the only head of the church. But each congregation has its own local leadership organized with elders and deacons. And there's, they must be qualified men, as you can find in First Timothy chapter 3, to have those things. And there are members of these things. Go, go with me to Philippians 1 to talk about the organization. Philippians chapter 1 um, and verse 1. Look at the first verse of this book. Here it says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with bishops and deacons. Now, within this one verse, you can see the church organized. Number one, you see the evangelists, you see the preachers, you see the ministers. That is Paul and Timothy. Okay, you see them mentioned there. Those are the preachers. Number two, the next thing he mentions, to all the saints. Now, some people think today that, well, in order to be a saint, you've got to be dead. Now, why would Paul be writing a letter to a bunch of dead people? He's not, right? Why? He's writing to Christians, people that are living. So number two, we see that there's one, one part of the church, Christians, in Christ who are at Philippi with bishops and deacons. Bishops are the same thing. As overseers have seen in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Same thing as elders in Acts chapter 14. Same thing as pastors in 1 Timothy chapter 3. All of those meaning the same thing. Those are just the overseers, those people that oversee the souls of the people's congregation. The deacons are those servants that carry out the Lord's work. But lastly and finally, the peculiar church teaches the correct plan of salvation. The correct plan of salvation. And when you look at the plan of salvation, Jesus states it plainly, he states it simply. And, he, and you, if you want the plan of salvation, I'm going to give it to you. But I want you to read the book of Acts. Remember, that is the establishment of the New Testament church. And you go through and you ask the question, what did this person do in the book of Acts to be saved? What did this person do to be saved in the book of Acts. What did this person do to be saved in the book of Acts? It's going to be the same thing. Since we're talking about the church, go with that, go with me to Acts chapter 2. Because this was the establishment. This is the day in which the church was established. Let's see what these people did on this day to be saved. And if we did what they did on this day, guess what? We'll be what they were, and that was just Christians only. Look, look once Peter gets done with his sermon, verse number 35... He gets to the conclusion, verse 36. He says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know surely that God has created this or made this same Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, what was it? That they crucified Jesus, that they, they killed him, slain him. They were cut to the heart, and they said, Men and brethren, and the rest of the apostles, what shall we do? They knew they were in sin, and they knew they had messed up. How can I make this situation right? What do I need to do? What must I do to be saved? Is in other words that they're saying. Now notice what Peter said. Repent, verse 38, 
and let every one of you be baptized. You might want to write Luke 24, verse number 44 through 46 here. I meant to make this mention earlier, so I'm going to go ahead and say it now. Remember, what needed to be preached in his name, beginning in Jerusalem? Repentance and remission of sins, right? Here he says, repentance and let everyone be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Why? For the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Let me ask this. What did they do on this day to be saved? Of course they believed. They knew that they had just crucified the Christ. They, Peter told them, you just slain him. He is Jesus the Christ. They were told to repent of their sins. And they were told to be baptized. And you'll see that over and over and over in the book of Acts. Jesus said it this way. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. He that does not believe shall be condemned. And that's the way the church teaches the plan of salvation. I want to ask you this question this morning. Are you a member of the church? You can become a member of his one church, the church of Christ, by simply doing what they did there. Because if you do that, you will be added to the church, Acts 2 and verse number 47. But maybe you're here this morning and you've already done that, but you need the prayers of the church. Maybe you're going through something and you need the prayers for strength and help. We'll be glad to do that with you and for you this morning. If we can help you anyway, come now as together we stand and as we sing.